May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. I want to begin with a comment from Martin Luther concerning verse 6 of our text. Um, Luther says this about verse 6. He says, Behold the picture that is painted here of God, who makes known to us his true nature, and that he shows him as looking downward. Upward he cannot look, for there is nothing above him. Beside him he cannot look, for there is none like him. Therefore, he can only look downward beneath himself. I use that because that really gives us a sense not only of what the Advent season is about as we celebrate the birth of our Savior, but there are three things connected to what Luther says about verse 6 that I would contend are present a critical feature of both saving and sanctifying grace. Three things that we will connect in verse 6, and then there are two other considerations. But as it relates to verse 6, here's what I would argue, that one of the features of saving and sanctifying grace is, one, a proper sense of the exalted otherness of God. A proper sense of the exalted otherness of God. Now I say this is helpful or necessary both in our salvation as well as in our sanctification. A proper sense of the exalted otherness of God. At the point of, of uh, at, at, well, prior to, as he was being called into the prophetic ministry, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, encounters that. And this is, what uses, this is what he uses as a platform to do the work of the Lord. He says in the year that King Uzziah died, he was in the temple and he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the glory of the Lord filled the throne room of heaven, so to speak, and smoke around the throne. And he saw the Lord high and and lifted up. Some would argue that he saw a theophany, a visible manifestation of God, and all of our Lutheran brothers would say that every theophany is a Christophany. So as it, what he sees in this vision is a vision perhaps even of the second person of the Godhead, and with that he understands that God is not just, he's not like the other gods, but he is high and he is exalted. That is what gives us a sense of dread when we come to an understanding of our sinfulness. And this is why when Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord in the temple of the Lord, he looks away and he says, woe is me because I am undone. Why? Because I've seen the Lord of glory. And so I would argue that as it relates to our sanctification as well as our salvation, that one of the features of it is that whether it's at the point of salvation or even in our sanctification, it is to have a right view or proper sense of the exalted otherness of God. Now, that's not just true in, in, in our salvation. It's true in our sanctification. When we take to heart that the one that we are seeking to please 
is a God who is thrice holy. That is, our, that is our, our impetus to do the things that he has commanded us to do. That is what is, should cause us to say no to unrighteousness. The fact that the God that we serve is high and lifted up. And so first off, again, a, a feature, one of the, the first aspects of that, that feature of, of God is a sense of, of God's saving grace and his sanctifying grace. A true, one of the features of it is that we get a proper sense of the otherness of God. He's not like us, and he is exalted in all of his being. Not only do we have a, a proper sense of the exalted otherness of God, but, but part of that feature, what's connected to it, is a proper sense of our own lowliness. When God makes us mindful of his grace, both in salvation and in sanctification, he makes us aware of how utterly undone we are. I think this is a problem. We maybe see it when it comes to our salvation. Surely we cry out of broken hearts for the mercy of God to come and to save us. That's what God does with his law. He breaks us down and makes us mindful. As Jonathan Edwards says, that God, before God makes men mindful of his mercy, he makes them mindful of their own misery. And I was sharing with the brother the other day that there is no such thing as a Christian who comes to God without a knowledge of knowing how undone they really are. Everyone who looks to God for, their, for the salvation of their souls, they do so because they realize that the law that God has put upon us is beyond our reach. No one comes and says, well, I'm, I'm better than. No, everyone who comes to God pleading for his mercy and his saving grace comes recognizing that I'm not better than so-and-so, but I'm not what you've called me to be. I've sinned against you, as David says in his great psalm of repentance. Against you and you only have I sinned. We stop comparing ourselves to one another, and we see ourselves in the light of his holiness. And in the light of his holiness, what we see is that we, as Paul says, we are sinners and we are the chief of sinners. So a feature, a genuine or a feature of genuine saving grace is that we have a proper sense and a critical, I would say a critical feature of God's saving and sanctifying grace is that we have a proper sense of the exaltedness of God and we have a proper sense of our own lowliness, that we are not exalted in our own eyes, we have been undone by the standard of God's law. The guilt clings to us and we recognize for the first time perhaps, especially in salvation, just how undone we actually are. God doesn't save good people. He saves wretched people. And one of the ways in which he saves us by, is by letting us know that we are wretched. Perhaps sometimes we've been listening to too many other people who admire us and we don't see ourselves as we really are. And God shows us what we really are and he brings us to a, seer, a, a genuine, sincere knowledge of our loneliness. I'm not talking about humble bragging. I'm talking about pouring out our souls before God and recognizing that we are deserving of nothing from him. 
There is no good that is innate in us. There is nothing to commend us. There is nothing good about us. And we have a proper sense of our lowliness. That's what causes us to cling to his mercy and his grace for the salvation of our souls. But brothers and sisters, a proper sense of our own lowliness is not only necessary as a part of our salvation, it is also necessary for our sanctification. We've been addressing this to some degree in our Sunday school class, that sanctification is not like a checklist of things that we must do. Okay, I've gotten better at that, and I've accomplished this, and I've accomplished that. No, sanctification is a recognition that even as we realize that I don't do some of the things that I used to do and some things are far from me, but then when we go back to God's law and we see ourselves, even the good that we have done, as the Lord says in Isaiah 64, that even our righteousness is as filthy rags. We're not ready to move on in sanctification until we recognize that, yes, we've been saved by his grace. Yes, we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But when we look at the deeds of our hands, we've not loved the Lord properly. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. We have not spoken. All of our words have not been seasoned with grace. We have allowed ungodly thoughts to travel the course of our minds. Paul even says, I didn't even know that I was covetous until I really looked in your law through the lens of the gospel. I a brother just asked me the other day about Romans 7. He needed some help on Romans 7, and his question was this. Is in, in Romans 7, because he comes out of a Wesleyan tradition and he wanted to know, is Paul in Romans 7, is he describing himself before his conversion or after his conversion? I said, okay, so we're talking about verses 15 and down where Paul talks about the struggles with sin. I said, so, so here's the way you can make this real simple. Look at how Paul describes his pre-conversion life outside of Romans. And, and because he doesn't say when, in fact, all of the, 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 the language in Romans 7 seems to speak of a present situation. But where does he speak of himself before his conversion? Well, Philippians. And what does he say in the book of Philippians? He says he was a Jew of Jews, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and according to the law, he was perfect. And then he saw Jesus. And when he saw Jesus, he goes back and he looks at the law. And he doesn't see a man that is perfect, but instead what he says is, I never would have known that I was covetous if it wasn't for the law. So that's because he's now been brought to a knowledge of Christ, and he now sees himself. So I, my argument is this, that Paul, when he describes, when he is intentionally describing his Christian or his walk with God before his conversion, he thinks he had something to boast of. But it's only when he comes to Christ that he recognizes that he also declares in Philippians that I don't want to be found having a righteousness of my own which is from the law. But rather I want to be found with the righteousness that is not my own but is by the gospel or by grace. 
In other words, covered with the righteousness of another. We need a proper sense of our lowliness as a part of our sanctification so that we are not puffed up in things that we think we have accomplished and therefore we think that certain, certain, certain deeds and certain attitudes and certain actions are above us. One of the things that Paul admonishes the believers in Galatians to do when he says, if a brother is overtaken in a sin, then you who are spiritual, be careful to, to be quick to restore such a one. But here's this caveat. But you be careful, lest you also be overtaken in, a, in sin. I think sometimes it's in our strength. When we stand in our own strength as David when all of the kings, uh, the spring of the year, when kings go out to war and David had been so victorious in war that, and everything was built up to such a degree that he didn't feel he needed to go to war like the rest of the kings. And therefore being puffed up in his own accomplishments, he's where he shouldn't have been at a time he shouldn't have been there. And he sees what he shouldn't see because he shouldn't have been there to see it. But then he acts on it. Because not only has he put himself away from where he should have been and sees what he doesn't see, now he has allowed himself to follow the course of what he sees. Is David above such a sin? No. And it is only those who are grounded in God's grace that has a proper sense of our own unworthiness when it comes to our salvation we grow in grace when we recognize that even in our strongest points on this side of heaven we are one thought one step away from disgracing the very God that we serve not only are we one step and one action and one thought away from disgracing him but everything that, that clings to us that we recognize as being contrary to the law of God, it clings to us. That's why the writer of Hebrews says that we should lay aside every sin and weight that easily besets us. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much to throw us off. And so I think that one of the characteristics of genuine saving grace is not only a proper sense of God's exalted otherness as it relates to both our salvation and our sanctification. We are saved by a holy God and we are saved for the service of a holy God. But it also includes a proper sense of our own lowliness that it's not beyond me. That there, is, there are sins that we may not have done but brothers and sisters, outside of the sin of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, there is nothing that is contrary to the law of God that is not possible for a child of God. But here's a third feature of that, and this is what brings the Advent together. The fact of God's condescension to us. Here is what brings it all together. It's a, it's a, it's a three-sided thing that, or three-angled thought here. As, as in, in, in other words, here's what we recognize both in our sanctification or our salvation and in our sanctification that God is exalted and above us and we are properly nothing in his sight. If, as the psalmist says, if he were to count sin, who would be able to stand? None of us. But here is the great 
mystery of the gospel, he condescended to us. The high and exalted God has condescended to the lowly, condemned, no good, unworthy creatures that we are. That is the mystery of the Advent season. That is the mystery of saving grace. And I, again, I would contend that saving grace, a feature of saving grace, is a proper sense of God's exaltedness, a proper sense of our own lowliness, and the fact that in God's grace, he has exalted or has condescended to us. He's condescended to us. What a thought. Now, we know people that live in this world who have accomplished certain things and have earned certain things, and they think themselves as being better than. And so therefore, whether it's celebrities or just rich people or whatever, it's almost that if they show up, it's like they are condescending to us. But they are just, they are us. They are like us. They are dirt just like we are. Brothers and sisters, this is not a matter. When we talk about the incarnation of Christ, this isn't a matter of a celebrity coming to your house. This is a matter of the thrice holy God who cannot so much as even look at evil condescends to come to your house. And that's what the incarnation is about. That's what the advent of Christ is about. That he comes to planet earth that we have already messed up to interact with sinners. There was a a church in Los Angeles that was known for a lot of Hollywood celebrities that would go and worship there, and they had uh, a special parking lot for the celebrities to park in so that after church was over, I guess they didn't have to deal with, you know, the likes of us or whatever. And then in one place, they even had a certain area in which they could enter into the building so they wouldn't have to contend. Now, if you just saw it on television, you see all of these people standing together. Don't, don't think for one minute that they are all together because before the benediction, they had a passageway where they could go out and they didn't have to contend with the likes. Now, I'm not saying that all celebrities that had that privilege took advantage of it, but the point being is that even in, those, in that particular church, they acquiesced to the celebrity status of more dirt. And, but, but here is the mystery of the advent. God condescends. The high, exalted God condescends. That's why we see him going to, to a Nicodemus who had, or, or, or to a Zacchaeus who had cheated so many people and he's looking and he, Jesus calls him down from the tree and says, come, I've got, I'm going to your house. And he says, Lord, no, not my house, not today. No, I'm coming to your house today. The centurion with the, with the son or the servant that was sick and the Lord says, where is he? I'll go. No, no, don't come to my house. But brothers and sisters, the mystery of the advent and the, and the birth of Jesus and the incarnation is that those three things work together. The exalted God condescends 
to meet with lowly creatures, creatures who are deserving of nothing but hell. That is a significant part both of our salvation and our sanctification. The fact that the exalted God condescends to those that are low in spirit and those who are unworthy to be in his presence. Well, that brings us to a second thing. I think that's the sense that we get here in verse 6 where he says, though, um, or when he says, but though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Not when we get ourselves together because we can't. God comes to us in our lowest state and he exalts us. But here's the second thing. The fact of his condescension to us is twofold. It, it, it opens up two things. The fact of his condescension to us, as we see in verse 8, one is the guarantee of his purposes for us. The fact of his condescension to us is the guarantee of his purposes for us. In verse 8, he says, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. How do I know? Because he's condescended to me. You see, the very fact that God condescends in the person of Christ and, and, and tabernacles amongst us, the very fact that he comes to us is the guarantee that he will fulfill his purposes for us. We live in an age where people are quick to talk about their destiny. But our destiny is determined by our Heavenly Father. And our Father guarantees his purposes for us. Brothers and sisters, whatever else may happen on this side of heaven, God's purposes towards us will never fail. And part of the reason we know it will not fail is because he condescended in order to fulfill his purposes for us. So the fact of his condescension is the guarantee that his purposes for us will be fulfilled. There, that's why he's never late, and that's why uh, the, the, we never leave early, because when he calls, we, we, we know that even if we die, what we say, an untimely death, death is still appointed by God. And whatever he has purposed for us on this side of heaven, he will accomplish it. But here's the second thing. The fact of his condescension is not only the guarantee of his purposes for us, it is also the guarantee of the commitment of his resources to us. The commitment of his resources to us. Also in verse 8, he says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Paul puts it this way in the New Testament, that I am confident of this one thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord. And how will he com complete that in us and through us? By, because he has committed all of the resources of his covenant love to those that he has saved and called to himself. He commits his resources to us. He has filled us with his spirit. He has conformed us to his law. He has given us 
brothers and sisters of like faith who communicate grace to us, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, that he has knitly joined us together with each joint supplying strength to the other so that each one, as each one, does its part. We are told in Hebrews that we are to extort or encourage and stir up one another unto every good work and unto love. God has committed the resources of his Holy Spirit, the resources of his table that he sets before us in the presence of the enemy, the resources of brothers who love us enough to confront us in our wrong and are committed to enough to us to stand with us in our sorrow. He has committed all of the resources that we need for life and godliness because he's fulfilling his purposes for us. The very fact that God condescends to us is the guarantee that he will complete the purpose or fulfill the purposes that he has established for us. And it is the guarantee that he has committed all of his, the resources of his, of his steadfast love for our good and for our benefit. He feeds us with his grace. He exhorts and encourages us through his appointed means. Now, in Protestant history, we talk about the means of grace, and typically we speak of the means of grace as the sacraments and the preached word of God. But I add another element. I think that because we are just categorizing it, it's not, it's not, there's no verse that says these are the only means of grace. But I think if we reason from the scriptures, we see that vital, vibrant Christian fellowship is another means of grace. Because that's how God strengthens, encourages, exhorts, and confronts us. I shared this before, but uh, when I was in college, I was on my college's uh, debate team, and it wasn't, I was the only, uh, I was the only one that looked like me on our debate team, and when we would travel throughout uh, the country and to different places, it wasn't a whole lot of us. And so I remember my first, uh, one of my early tournaments, I went, and had a pretty good round. I'm feeling pretty good and talking to some of the, uh, my, my teammates and so forth. But there was another brother that was present. And he came over to me and he's just kind of whispers, hey, you got a little ice cream. I'm thinking like, well, I don't know what this brother's talking about. You know, I'm just going on about my business and talking to all these different people. And he pulls me aside, hey, no, you got some ice cream. I said, what are you talking about? He pulls me aside. He says, you got something hanging out your nose. And I said, oh, okay, well, that, okay, thank you, brother. Thank you, thank you. I don't remember what school he was from, whether he was a debater or whatever it was, but I thank God that he was there because some other folk that looked at me face to face didn't say anything. They thought something, I'm sure, but they didn't say anything. God puts people in our lives as vital connections in our being conformed to the image of Christ to say the uncomfortable thing that others might be thinking but they don't have this spirit in them necessarily or the desire to say it. And to this day, I wish I could have written that brother's name down because it's like, you know, that's a, that's a nightmare to think you're in front of people and stuff hanging out your nose and nobody says anything. God connects us to a body that should say something. And see, and that's part of him committing his resources to our good for his glory as he accomplishes his purposes for us. 
But here's the third and final thing. The God who is exalted, who is, who is the exalted other God, who gives us a proper sense of our own lowliness and then condescends to us in our lowliness, and then we have the guarantee of his purposes being fulfilled in us who are broken and fractured and lowly, and then he gives us the resources to be and to do what he's called us to be and to do. Here's what that does not mean. That's our third thing as we go back to verse 7. What that does not mean is that we won't have trouble. Look in verse 7. He says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. Now, here's why this is important in light of everything that we've said. When people wait for God to move in their lives, they neglect the resources that he's provided. See, in other words, we want a one-on-one encounter with God that he's going to hold my hand. And what we don't realize is that the people that he connects us to, the covenant community, whether it's local or extended, is the means by which God extends his hand towards us to deliver us. He does send the right shoulder at the right time for us to cry on. He does send the right voice at the right time. It might be someone that we are in regular fellowship with or someone that we've met at another church somewhere, but God connects us with that which is necessary even in our season of trouble. You see, the fact that the highly exalted other God has condescended to us does not mean that every day is going to be a good day. It doesn't mean that there won't be rough spots along the way. But what it does mean is that the trouble that we encounter will not frustrate his purposes for us. And the troubles that we encounter in this world whether it's stuff that happens to us or because of stuff that we've done, does not keep him from giving us of his, the resources of his steadfast love. God is with us. Here's what Jesus says to his disciples, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Now, how does that mean? What does it mean that he is with us always? Here's what some people say. Well, that means he's in our hearts. He is in our heart by the, through the person of the Holy Spirit. But how is he with us always? How is he with us always, even until the end of the world? He's with us through the ministry of the word and brothers and sisters of like faith. He's with us through the indwelling of his spirit. He is with us. And the favor and face of the God to whom we have been reconciled is never, ever turned away from us again. You see, that was our, our state of exile. In fact, at the end of verse 8, what, uh, what, what, what the psalmist says, do not forsake the work of your hands. In other words, don't turn your face from me. He's not pleading. He's petitioning in light of what God himself has promised face of the Father is never turned away from us because he indeed has condescended. And the fact that he has condescended in the person of his Son means that we will never be without his favor 
And it means that we will never, ever face his wrath again. I've heard a number of Christians over the years say that, well, you know, we're not saying that Christians won't sin. And so when Christian sins, uh, when a Christian sins, you don't lose your salvation, but you, br- you lose your fellowship. Brothers and sisters, that, as John Gershner would, you would say, that is a lie that is from the pit of hell, and it has the smell of smoke all over it. God, who has reconciled you to himself through his son, God, who has poured out his wrath on his son so that he could look on you with favor, will never, ever turn his face away from you again. As long as the son is at the right hand, and as, the lo- as long as the son wears the wounds of Calvary, the father will never, ever turn his face of favor away from you. Not when you are weak, not when you are rebellious, not when you are built up, not when you are puffed up, not when you are stinking from the the, the stench of the pig pen. The Father will never not look on you with favor because he has condescended in his Son so that he could meet you in your lowliness and accomplish his purposes through you. You will have trouble in this life, but whatever that trouble is, it is not because God has frowned upon you. His favor is secured by the fact of his condescension in his son. But though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. Brothers and sisters, That's the good news of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for your word and the reminder that you have, you who are thrice holy, has condescended to love us. And you set your love upon us while we were yet enemies. And if you loved us when we were enemies, Now that you have claimed us as your children, give us the confidence through the resources that you've provided for our strength and our our comfort. Give us the comfort and the consolation of knowing that we are still yours, that your face continues to shine upon us, and your purposes will never be frustrated. We don't always see what we think we ought to see, we don't always feel as though we belong, but you have condescended. We've not ascended. You've condescended. We were the one who strayed, and you came and got us. Give us the comfort that you'll never leave nor forsake us, and we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?